Welcome to Swing Angry Live. I am your host, Brandon Matthews. It's my pleasure to bring you the latest in sports performance and player development strategies from a variety of industry experts as we discuss some of the hottest topics in baseball, softball, and athletic development. Be sure to follow us on all major social media platforms at bmat0416 and check out the website, www.bmatthewsbaseball.com. If you would like to be a guest on the show or would like to recommend someone for the show, please feel free to reach out. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Uh, so, Jeff, what what type of hitters did you work with today? Like, how, how was your day in the cage? Um, who came in? What did you guys do? So, most of the guys that come in are youth to high school uh, age group. All our college guys, of course, are back at school now. So um, mostly youth hitters today um, are high school guys are just getting the season going here in Texas. Uh, this last Friday was first day. So rocking and rolling, long practices, uh, getting ready for first scrimmage. So a lot of youth guys, most of the guys, uh, I'd say youth guys are between nine and you know 12 or 13. That's kind of the bread and butter for that age group. So, yeah. Is that about the youngest age you guys go, about nine years old? Yeah, we initially took, when we first opened the doors uh, just about two years ago, we would take really any hitter that walked through the door. You know, we got to keep the doors open. We were open for one week and COVID shut us down for, you know, two and a half months or so. Uh, so we had 25 members sign up that first week, mix of, you know, eight-year-olds all the way up to high school guys. And we had to train them remotely. So we had to pivot. We could not get into our building. Um, so we, you know, trained everybody remotely. We did an evaluation and we still do with all of our athletes. So we had a good foundation for what we needed to work on with each one of those guys. They followed the programming, hitting in their backyard. Uh, most of those guys couldn't get access to a field, definitely not a cage. But they walked back through the doors after two months of just hitting and we're setting PRs, you know, exit velocity, distance. So we knew that the programming was good. And then when we got back in cage with our coaches, uh, it's myself. We've got uh, Chris Garza, uh, who's, who's my son, who's now a coach, Kevin Keys, who's one of our other coaches, and Lowell Galindo, who's my uh, owner, owner and partner in the, in the business. It's just us, and we just rock it and roll it every day uh, with a mix of kids, usually uh, mostly youth, but all the way up to college and pro guys, too. Yeah, talk about your setup, man. It, just from afar, when the ABCA comes back to Dallas, I'm definitely coming, and I'm going to check out your place, but tell people about what Hit Forth is like. Like When I look at the pictures, I'm like, dang, this is a dream come true. Thank you. Um, my partner Lowell, uh, he's really the driving force behind Hit Forth. Uh, it was his idea. Uh, he would come down from Austin to San Antonio. I was uh, an instructor at DBAT and uh, he would bring his son, Mac, who was, you know, 11 at the time as a smaller kid. Um, when I, when I started working with him, he, uh, I wasn't doing any private training. I was doing all small group at the time. But I thought, man, this dad is willing to come down from Austin to San Antonio. So it was an hour and a half drive to hit with me for an hour. And then after he hit with me, they were hitting like multiple days a week, just going to their local cage and hitting. They were really committed. They worked really hard. 
so I started working with just one player who was Mac um, exclusively on an individual basis. And a few months into it, he's like, you know what? I'm going to do a hitting facility in, in Austin uh, where we live. Uh, what would you do? Would you do something like DBAT? And uh, the DBAT that I worked out, it was 25,000 or so square feet, 15 cages. Uh, I was operating the upper level uh, with doing my own training program. And I said, no, what I would do is I'd do a smaller space, uh, more boutique style, and I would include all of the most modern technology, which you just can't do when you have a facility that's that large, right? You can have one or two hit tracks, but can't fold 15 cages, at least, you know, not under any budget that I know. Hmm. And uh, so he got a 4,600 square foot place and we put uh, four cages in it, pretty good wide cages. Our building's pretty fortunate to be pretty tall at 25 foot high nets and we got hit tracks in every cage. Uh, we have blasts that we put on our bats and we use K vests in our evaluation with our players. So we get a really good kind of sense for where the player is, what uh, the opportunities are for them to improve. And then we've got our own training program that we follow to help them get better. So that's really the nuts and bolts of it. Um, but we put everything uh, in, the, in the player's face. We believe in objective data uh, not subjective evaluation in all cases. Uh, I coached for a long time, Brandon, without technology for like 10 years, just in your cage, sweat box cage with no tech. And now it's, it would be hard for me to go back to it. I, I could still help hitters, but I see the game not just from my eyes, but I see it through a lot of technology that, that tells me when my eyes are lying to me so that um, I can help players get better. Yeah, without a doubt. I had a, a parent ask me one time, did I think I would be a better hitter when I was coming through if I grew up with the resources that today's players have? And I was like, without a doubt, I'm 100% sure if I had the same resources, I would have been able to unlock some things about my swing that I didn't know or I assumed and was probably wrong about. I took one. I never had a, a private training uh, coach when I was growing up, I went to one um, hitting camp at a local facility. There was only one game in town. So I went, it was two weeks long. And the only things I remember was they put you on a board, which is like a lazy Susan. So the back foot would spin. So they were encouraging me to squish the bug and they wanted me to hit the ball even, they call it even with your pecker. So you weren't supposed to hit the ball out in front. You're supposed to catch the ball deep. And you're just supposed to like straight down to it. Like that's literally what I was taught. So when I first started doing uh, lessons, I did the same thing. I told players they needed to swing down straight A to B to contact. And I wanted them to hit the ball like low to down, you know, on the ground. And um, I started uh, when I, when I got out of baseball, I spent seven years in the corporate world and I, I wasn't involved in the game at all. And when I started um, playing golf and I took a lesson, they always had video. They always had like you talk about swing plane. And I made the connection in my brain that swing plane and golf is the same thing as baseball. The ball's just not on the ground. So that was my first like, OK, I don't know anything about hitting, but I'm learning about golf and I can start to transfer some of the information over. So the kinetic chain, which was they were just calling the. Uh, the the uh, kinetic link at that point. Um, 
I started making a correlation and I thought after like a year that hip rotation and swing plane was it. And so I just thought if you rotate your hips really fast and you swung on plane, like I was going to be better than most hitting coaches out there. And uh, now, you know, 15 years later, I guess I realized that there's so much more um, to understand about movements, so much more to uh, diversity in the game and how you teach it, how you explain it, how you think it. But that was my building blocks. Like I just started to look outside of baseball for the best information. I started questioning myself as a hitter uh, or as an athlete, what I thought was right. And I, I think I had a growth mindset before I knew what a growth mindset was. And that helped me get an edge. And I used to coach against guys whose resume was like intense. What you read was my probably my D-bat old uh, resume on the wall. And so I used to be next to a guy that he won the, he was a Golden Spikes nominee, won a College World Series, was College World Series MVP, like started in the big leagues and, you know, was drafted in the first round twice, started in the big league. Like his resume was just stacked. And mine was like, Jeff, Jeff played a little bit of baseball. Uh, he likes baseball and you should like work out with Jeff, right? That was my resume. It was like <laughs> a little paragraph next to like this stack thing. But this guy was doing like six lessons a week and I was doing 50 lessons a week and everybody would say, have you ever heard, seen him hit? And I was like, yeah, I know he's a great hitter, amazing hitter, but he's teaching the stuff that I was taught as a player. And I know that wouldn't have helped me get any better. So, yeah. Yeah. That's funny that you mentioned like how you are taught to hit because that's exactly the same things that I went through. Um, I used to go to hitting camps locally here and they called it A to C because they would say, we want to go A to contact. Yeah, yeah. So it was down straight to the ball. And unfortunately, like I'm I, like, I like technology and business and stuff like that. So I'm a very logical, like, I don't know, not a nerd per se, but if you say go down to the ball, like I'm literally going to do it. Yeah. So unfortunately I literally backspun a lot of balls that, flared in front of center field and that's probably about all they did um i hit one home run my whole life and i was 12 when i did it and probably don't even know how i did it um the rest of my success was uh good enough to be in the the high school starting lineup and hit a lot of singles and occasionally run into a double but um at the higher level my, my swing just didn't play against advanced pitching and those cni singles weren't weren't good enough to prolong my career so i think i became um I guess, questioning the swing. I went to an ABCA for the first time in, I think, 2015 or 16. It was in Nashville, and John Malley, uh, I think he was – he was, yeah, I believe he was with the Cubs at the time, and he did, like, the science of hitting or how science has impacted hitting. And he was talking about the approach angles of the fastball coming in at, at a decline. and um, the, Yeah, the stories of the swing, the story of the pitch. And I'm like, man, all this stuff makes sense to me, like – so getting behind the ball and having a nice like slight up attack angle and that just opened up Pandora's box for me. And I'm like, all right, I got to go figure stuff out because I was teaching the same thing I was taught. And um, I was having su some success with like my my JV high school team at the time or uh, I coached 14 U one summer and, and we were relatively decent. But I'm like, man, if I could go back, I'd tell all those hitters, I'm sorry. Uh, you probably could have been a lot better if if I was smarter then than I am now and just didn't do things the same exact way I was taught. And um, 
now I still get the uh, the outside, I guess, coach who says, oh, he teaches a launch angle swing. And I'm yeah. like, gosh, thanks, A-Rod. Here we go again. Um, I, uh, you know what's funny <laughs> is I was – so I worked for Diamond Kinetics at the time, and I was sent to watch – I didn't watch any uh, presentations at ABCA except for Maley because we – he was working with Zep sensors at the at the time. Uh, Trevor yeah, that was my first sensor. Yeah, Trevor Stocking is a friend of mine, and he was the guy that went to the Zep company and said, "Hey, you, you're making a sensor for golf clubs. You need to make it for baseball." And they're like, "Great, here's some money. <laughs> Figure out how to do it, and what baseball players you want to sponsor." So he literally got like Trout and Donaldson, that all the guys you saw in the video and presentation. Uh, to kind of like push the sensor. So I was working for Diamond Kinetics and we were the tech sponsor of the show. So they had a presentation with Zep all over the presentation. Trevor had put it together. And we had the 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 night before we had to go and, and tell ABCA that we didn't want them to put Zep in the presentation. So Trevor spent like three months putting that together and had to go delete all the Zep info out of it. <laughs> So I went and watched it and it was the same thing, like, uh, you know, six degree down angle fastball, off speed pitch is about 10 degrees, talking about uh, the scent angle of the pitch and trying to match it with the uh, ascent angle of the bat. So getting on plane, you know, uh, the degrees of launch angle that the balls uh, would correlate to the highest hits. And I still think about a lot of that stuff today when I'm working with players. You know, we, we tell our guys that we want them to be line drive hitters because it's the highest probability of success. It's the highest batting average, highest on-base percentage, the highest uh, slugging, the highest ISO, the highest woe. But like basically any stats you're looking for if you hit a line drive, line drives are in the air. Um, so we tell our guys we want to hit the ball hard over the head of the infielders, then hard over the ball over the head of the outfielders, then hard over the fence, kind of in that priority because if you can hit the ball hard over the head of the infield, that plays at all levels. And yes, I for never sure. have anybody push back on that. It's only when I say, hey, you know what? Like your best hit would be something hit really hard in the air that goes over the fence. Like literally is the most productive uh, thing you can do as a hitter. But that's not necessarily what I want to teach. And furthermore, I don't want my players or parents going around telling people that that's what we do because it's not. Yeah, without a doubt. Um I get the whole, uh, when I do assessments, you know, you talked about assessments. Every time I do an assessment, we've got the blast sensor on their bat. They're um, getting some slow-mo video from the hit tracks. And obviously they're getting their hit tracks, batted ball data and stuff like that. And when we go through the reports, we get to, I always do launch angle last because when I get to that one, the first thing I say is, I don't know what you've heard about launch angle or, or what you've been told. I was like, but launch angle is not a swing. I was like, here's what we're looking at. We're just trying to see like these two cameras can put a number on how that ball came off the bat. I was like, that's pretty much it. And I just want to make sure your hardest hit balls are hit as a line drive. And, you know, roughly we want to see those being between like 10 and 25 degrees. If you're hitting the ball hard, that's where we want it to go over the infield. I said, you know, if you're coming in here and you're hitting the ball 90 miles an hour and we see your hard hit average is a one, well, you're hitting into a lot of double plays and we got to figure out what's going on and, you know, how can we maximize your bat to ball contact and hit the ball hard at an optimal angle where you're going to get on base more often. And um, I'm yeah. like, you're, you're, I said, you're, 
your coach probably tells you to hit the ball on the ground, hit the ball in the air, or hit a line drive. I said, and they're talking the same thing I'm talking. They're just not using numbers to put with it, or they're not measuring it, you know? And then light bulbs kind of click off. When uh, when we first uh, opened up, we've got, you know, pitching machines, but we bought, uh, we were the first facility, I believe, that got iPitch. So fully programmable, uh, really helps us create game-like atmosphere. And I've never hit against one before. Um, really didn't have much experience against three wheels. Uh, I was just a kid that liked the, you know, feel good BP. So uh, partner fired it up. And when I hit first ball that I hit, went right back up in the middle um, through the L screen. And he had to like, you know, duck out of the way. And when I looked at the hit tracks, the ball bounced right after the pitcher. And it flashed me back to when I was a player in a cage with no data that's exactly what I was trying to do every single time that I walked in the cage. My goal is hit a low flat liner right through the middle, like over the pitcher's head. That ball landed in the grass. Like it didn't even make it to the outfield. So just like you, like I hit six lifetime home runs. I didn't hit a home run until I was 19 years old. I gained 50 pounds in college from lifting weights. And like I went from 150 uh, five pounds to 205 pounds. That's the only reason I ever hit a ball out and I averaged two a season just because I got a lot stronger and I could catch the ball more out in front. But I only ever thought about trying to hit the ball low at the middle. Uh, and I, I often wonder if I had the just the feedback of where the ball is landing, how would that have changed me as a hitter? Because I was right. the skinniest guy. I was I was a track guy. I was known for track. I ran track since I was eight. I was pretty fast. I was a center fielder. So every coach that I ever had, I was skinny, just told me they wanted me to put the ball ball in play and get on base and not strike out and let like the real hitters drive you in, you know, kind of steal, steal second. So yeah, I I just had a uh I had a kid. I was doing some um sessions for our local 14U, 12U teams and I had a kid on the 12U who is is actually a young 12U. Um, he could have been playing 10U because he just turned 10 years old. Uh, but he was hitting the ball like 68 miles an hour. And when he came in, he's hitting at 68, like 170 feet. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, he so he's a small frame 10-year-old and he's super fast. He plays center field for their little league team or whatever. I looked at him and I said, I bet your coaches tell you to hit the ball on the ground, don't they? And um he goes, yeah, how'd you know that? I was like, because you're fast. Yeah. I said, but you're 10 years old and you're hitting the ball 68 miles an hour and you just hit one 170 feet. I was like, you can run into your fair share of home runs, mm -hmm. um, you know, in your 11 year, your 12 year, year old year. I was like, but unfortunately, coaches with the best intentions, because I don't think coaches have ill intentions when they're working with youth at all. I think they have the best intentions to help them. But this could be a kid who, if he never saw how hard and how far he could hit it, you know, on the hit tracks, he would never have known, like, if I keep trying to hit the ball hard, be on time, and drive it over the infielder's head, I may be able to run into some fun and enjoyable home runs at 11 years old, at 12 years old, and not be the kid who is 14, tries out for his high school team as a ninth grader, one, never got to experience that success, and worst case scenario, can't get out of a bad habit that was unfortunately developed by just trying to hit the ball on the ground when he was 10, 11 or 12. Yeah. When, when the field doubles in size and you got a, you know, 13 year olds who has been hitting like low balls, you know, barely gets into the outfields. 
those balls land in the infields when you move up to the big fields and they don't realize how high now they have to hit the ball because they have no juice in their bat to get the ball into the outfields. So when we have a player that hits the ball 70 mile an hour max, 60 average, I'm pretty confident in telling them at some point during that season, they're going to hit their first home run. You know, it's going to happen if they square up a baseball. It's it's just inevitable. Uh, Even, you know, most of the fields here between 200 and 225, we've got some junior fields, 250. We've had kids walking in that that a goal for them was to hit a ball like 55 mile an hour. They're coming in like 45. And within a year, they're hitting the ball close to 70. We've had that happen on multiple occasions just because we value, in in our opinions, we value the right things. We focus on uh, skills at scale. We focus on kind of uh, making sure that we are asking the right questions so the kids are valuing the right outcomes. And then we just kind of let nature take its course. If, If your kid values the right outcome, hitting the ball hard, hitting a lot of line drives, you don't have to say it anymore. Like they'll automatically look at hit tracks numbers and want to PR every day. And then us as, as coaches have to say, well, sometimes you got to work on hitting the outside pitch and driving it at oppo, right? Like sometimes you pull so much that you're going to be an easy out against a skilled pitcher. So not every day is a PR day. Now we got to build skills, like stuff like that. Yeah. And that's, that's important that you're, you're bringing out like hit tracks is not just, I'm hitting off of this thing and trying to see how high my exit velocity can be or how far I can hit it. You can actually use those tools to develop a hitter who can compete and help win games. Um, so talk about a little bit about how you guys do a little bit of both of that. Like you're, you're going to help this, you're, you're making a hitter who's going to help people win games because he can hit the ball hard and because he does know how to get behind it and hit line drives, but he can also at the same time, because he can do those things, he can handle an outside pitch and drive it right back through the middle over the pitcher's head if necessary. One thing we talk about all the time is making it game-like um, and making sure that everything that we do transfers to the game. Um, when we have an athlete come in, we we talk about, like, what should you value? So we'll usually say, like, if you hit a ball 95 mile an hour at the big league level, what's your batting average? Because everybody understands that. And so they'll give you some guesses, and then I tell them that the batting average – on a ball hit 95 mile an hour, regardless of where you hit on the ground in the air, off a pull side is 399 historically that registers. And then we tell them if you hit a line drive at the big league level, and, and we talk about how like we don't use use stats because use stats are just inaccurate and inconsistent. So we use professional stats, but it, it transfers all the same. If you hit a line drive at the big league level, you hit about 600. In the shortened season, it was 640. That's usually what is in college. And according to the website, I found youth hitters uh, or high school hitters hit about 780 on a line drive. So the most basic stat, I'm not the biggest believer in the importance of batting average, but in the most basic level, that's super relatable and important. Um, And then we talk about like, you know, you've got to be able to do it against good pitching in games when there's pressure. So we try to create that environment in the cage. That's why you have machines. That's why we only do um, we only give PRs off of BP or out of the machine. We don't allow kids to do BP uh, or flips or T work PRs. Uh, that doesn't count for us. So I'll yell at a kid if I if I see them in their accounts um, before we get to the BP side. So we just want to make sure that we're getting the environment where we're throwing pretty firm fastballs at them. 
We're letting them see spin when they're uh, at the skill level. We believe that they're going to see it in games. And we're going to start to mix speeds and locations and make it pretty competitive. So, you know, we're going to drive the right outcomes in the right environment, and that will lead to game success. And I can honestly say, you know, we've got 100 and so members. Uh, so we're a membership-only facility. I don't know of a single player that's having success in the building that's not taking to the field. And in my previous uh, place at DBAT, I ran a facility where it was only me and I didn't have a machine. And it was a lot of flips. And I found in the summer times, those kids weren't hitting in games. And I had to assess how I was developing the hitters to perform when it actually matters most. Yeah, that's, um, you know, the flips. And they weren't translating to games. Um, normally, what what I do with a lot of my hitters is we will we'll train in stages. Um, and I know there's this big social media debate, depending on you know what you read on a certain day. Some people are way over here about like throw the tee away and tear it up, and then some people over here are like, well, it can be useful. And you know, I'm kind of right in the middle. Like, depending on the quality of the hitter and where they come in with a, a, a prerequisite skill level. Um, for instance, if I have a young eight year old and I, I do flips and he or she misses, you know, 20 out of 25, I mean, yeah. that lesson's going to be pretty miserable if we just keep doing flips and she only hit or he or, he or she only hits four or five balls. So like maybe, yeah. you know, maybe you're not ready for the timing of it. Um, you know, let's go do some, some movement work in front of the mirror. Um, see your stance, you know, see if we can repeat some draft swings, um, and then maybe we go from there and we go back to the tee a little bit and we'll move the tee to different locations and let you get used to matching the plane and hitting good balls in the air. But, you know, I wouldn't do that with every hitter. You know, if if I've got a hitter who comes in and we're doing front toss and he or she's barreling 10 out of 15 balls pretty good, I'm like, all right, you're, you're doing a pretty good job. Maybe let's try to advance this into um, just blocked machine fastballs mm -hmm. and uh, see how well you handle that. So. I think you've got to balance the training environment according to, you know, what's the player's background, what's their skill set, how old are they, uh, where are they currently at in their development as a hitter, and then adjust that plan from there and uh, and use all the tools that you have to, to make them a little bit better today than they were at the last session. And that's the art of coaching, right? The art of coaching is knowing when to scale things back or make adjustments. Um, like you said, we're going to have like, you know, some nine or 10 year old beginning little league players are going to walk through our doors. So we've got to be able to soften it, um, the difficulty level. So we'll do it with the same speeds from the same distance, low speeds. Um, and then just talk about uh, with the player, like it's okay to struggle a little bit. Okay. As long as we're trying to get a little bit better each day, it's okay. But once you do start to have some success, we're going to start to make it a little bit more difficult. If it's too easy, then the player goes automatic and they just turn off all of the learning in their brain. If it's too hard, then they go into survival mode. So then they don't want any part of it and they just want to give up. So it's keeping within that ratio. And I think it was talent code that said, you know, between 40 and 60% is like the Goldilocks ratio of success. And then we just have to define success the right way. So with us, it's just hitting the ball hard somewhere. Um, and that served us well. Um, but yeah, like it's, it's, it's an art with our pro guys. We find that a lot of them are just so used to comfortable VP and just kind of feeling it. We kind of push those guys to 
have a little bit more difficult um, practice, you know, we will have them spar with the eye pitch, you know, random 65 mile an hour from 40 feet humming. And uh, it'll be difficult. But I had a pro guy go to a, you know, go to a, a team tryout and say that 90 mile an hour from the actual distance was like slow, which is a yeah. pretty great feeling for a, a player. We had a, a player who played uh, junior college baseball, hadn't played any pro ball. And we trained him for six months, got a lot better, hit the ball a lot harder. And he got signed as a pro, which was a pretty incredible feeling to have a guy make that ascension. who never uh, kind of got there. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I was reading something. I can't remember what it was, but you know, they call it the flow state and you were more or less mentioning the same thing in the talent code. Um, They just called it the flow state. Um, I tell my hitters, like you're always trying to find the sweet spot on the barrel but we really have to find the sweet spot within your training. Um, and that's yeah. where, you know, just like you said, if, if you're, if it's always too easy, I don't even have to focus and I can accomplish this task, you know, so I'm not really growing in that environment. And if on the flip side, if it's incredibly too hard, um, I, I told one of my kids the other day, I said, if, if the, if the best high school team in the, in the state of football, uh, in the state of North Carolina, cause that's where I'm at. I said, the best football team in high school, went up against the New England Patriots next week. It didn't matter if they played their best game ever. They still aren't going to win. Right. And when you know you're in an environment that you cannot succeed in, you're not going to keep coming back. You know, I think that's how we lose kids. If we just say, all right, we want, you got to hit in the game. So let me crank the machine up and let's go double barrel. This one's fastball. This one's breaking ball. And you're not even very consistent off a of front toss. Like you have no sense of timing, no sense of bat control, and you're just going to magically figure it out because I'm throwing a breaking ball and a fastball that you out of the machine. Like that kid's probably going to hate baseball or that, that kid's probably going to hate softball in less than two or three weeks. And I think that's the first thing, right? Is we want our players to actually enjoy the game. Our, our number one priority as a coach is to like grow the game and get more players active and involved and loving it. So participation needs to be high. And then we want them to feel like, okay, that they're actually good at the sport um, that's kind of the next. So building their confidence. And then after that, we wanted to kind of build their skill and test them and, and get them competitive. But I think it's important that like travel baseball players, right. They kind of look down at little leaguers. Well, I think there's a lot of benefits of playing a little league. I'm a, about to put my younger kids in the little league. Um, it, it should be less pressure. It should be more fun. And I want my, my kids to, like, let me know when they're ready to compete and move up to like, you know, the double A level before the triple A level, before the major level. Uh, we've got some of the most skilled or talented uh, 12 to middle school players that come and train with us. I got middle school players that ball 100 mile an hour, uh, which is insane. I, I, as a coach, I never thought I would see that. A kids that are 135 pounds hitting the ball that hard. But they still will face kids that are throwing 80 mile an hour off the bump. And it's a struggle. And I often say, like, if they go to their majors tournament, face the number one pitcher in the country and get diced up, they need to have a confidence building session the next time they come in. Like, yeah. I can't hit them over the head all the time with a really difficult practice because then just hate the game. I just had a I had a 10 year old kid come in tonight. He was my last lesson. Um, and one thing I use the hit tracks for is I love that quality hit game um, where yeah. it will just 
give you points for hitting the ball hard and it rewards you for hitting balls hard in the air. So going back to that simple statement of, you know, skills that scale and an attainable goal every hitter can have is pick a good pitch, put a good swing on it and hit it hard. Uh, yeah. You don't have to worry. About, and, and that quality hit game really gets my hitters to stop thinking about the outcome of, well, did they catch it or did I get a hit? And then they're just like, they're just chasing the points. Right. So, and ironically, they stop swinging at bad pitches because I'll, if I'm doing front toss and we're doing it, we're trying to see like how consistent can you stay on the barrel? How consistent can you hit line drives? Um, and I'll throw them all over the place. Yeah. And if we're just doing like BP, they'll swing at almost every one I throw. But as soon as I say, all right, we're going to do a round of quality hit, I'm still throwing them all over the place. And all of a sudden now they're putting in some quality stops or quality takes, whatever you want to call it. And I'm like, you just realized how to look at plate discipline and hunt pitches because you were just trying to get a good a good pitch you could get a lot of points on. And they finally figure out, hey, if I just swing at balls in the zone, I got a pretty good chance to line one up and get 50 points here or 60 points there. And that's been a real fun, competitive environment that I think has translated to a lot of my hitters' game success because I had one hitter tell me that he came back from like one of his 12U weekend tournaments and he said – I just treated it like the point game. He was like, I was just looking for a good pitch I could hit and I could barrel it. And, you know, I hit a couple of line drives. I'm like, that's, that's as simple as it needs to be right there. Yeah. We, uh, one of the most fun things we did, we had a hit league and we mixed teams of players and we threw BP as coaches. So we'd have like a high school team captain and then we'd have like a decent, you know, nine year olds, you know, so it'd be like a nine year old, 12 year old, 15 year old, 17 year old, kind of a, kind of a setup. And we'd mix. So if it was a high school guy, I'd throw firm and mix pitches and uh, hit hit spots. But with a nine year old, maybe I'm just giving them fastballs down the middle. But it brought out their competitive side. You know, they get to try to score runs. Just the environment, even from a coach's standpoint, I had more fun doing it than a standard lesson where you know we're going through normal progressions from activation and movement to t work to toss to live. I had a lot of fun doing it. They had more fun doing it and it transferred like all those kids did really well in the fall when we were running it. So we believe a lot in, in competing, but also making sure that it's like level appropriate. Yeah. It's, it's crazy how, when you, you put them in that atmosphere and they figure out like training can be fun. Like it doesn't have to feel like work. And I think that's the biggest difference when you have a hitter who comes in and they feel like I have to be here or, you know, it's like work to them. You don't get the same buy-in as, as when you can make it one translate to making them better in the game. And two today's kids, like they love video games. Like, let's just be honest. Like you've got to connect with the kid who grew up in, you know, 2000, you know, the kid who was born in 2000 is 22 years old this year. So that's mm -hmm. the kid you got to connect with at the college level. And then every kid younger than that your your middle schoolers and and your high schoolers like they're all part of the tech world and their attention span is whatever technology can hold their attention and i think blast where they're trying to you know get efficient bat speed not chase false bat speed but mm -hmm. it's pretty cool when they look on the board and they're like oh i swung pretty fast right then or you know i i hit that ball hard in the air uh and and then getting runs and being able to play the games i took i took one of those uh 12 u groups and they would come in in groups of four and we would go two on two and play a little mini game. Awesome. And I think they went seven or eight innings where it was extra innings and they were just having the time of their life. And 
to see the joy on their faces. One of them makes a comment. It was like, this is funner than actually being on the field. And I'm like, well, for it to be December and you're having fun playing baseball, because here in North Carolina, December is pretty cold. Um, yeah. And they don't really get to do much outside. And these kids are just having a blast in December where a lot of other kids might not be, you know, doing anything baseball related. I've coached every level of travel baseball. I've started, you know, with uh, middle school groups, uh, I coach high school. And then I stopped doing travel baseball and I had a group of parents that were like, Hey, we got a bunch of like kids. They're all eight. They're all really good. We want you to coach. And I thought, okay, if I could get a group of, of kids and coach them from the beginning, you know, I don't have any other coaches interfering and I can kind of like lead them might be pretty fun. So I took it on in the first tournament that we played, we got outscored 36 to two the fall same year fall. We outscored opponents 42 to six, uh, same team, same players, but just completely flipped it on its head. As far as like outcomes, what I would incentivize my teams with is if we did really well in a tournament, we made it to the championship game, whether we won or lost, we would end practice, hitting practice the next week with a wiffle ball. And I'm telling you, it was the most exciting, fun, energizing activity that we did in practice. You know, we had groups of players, you know, your standard T work and flips and then BP and, you know, here's your two strikes, here's your two out count, you know, all that type of stuff. But man, like that was more like laborious, you know, and monotonous. But when I said, hey, here's the wiffle ball and I bring it out and have a good player grab the wiffle ball bat, they're choosing teams. It would be super intense. It was the most fun to watch. I wouldn't even do anything. I would just like observe and like have fun with them. Yeah, and true, like, true Sandlot. Yeah. Which we, we miss that around. I don't know how it is where you're at, but – where I'm from, like we just started little league signups um, and they'll go, you know, T-ball four all the way up to like, I think 13, 14, 15. Um, and here probably for the past three or four years, they just struggle to get enough numbers. Um, and it's unfortunate because when I grew up, little league the or city leagues were like, we all played against each other in my grandma's backyard when I was growing up. So wiffle ball was every weekend. Mm -hmm. And then those are the same kids I went to school with. So we played with each other in middle school. Uh, and then we played with each other in high school. And every summer we were playing in the local rec leagues and it was competitive. It was fun. Um, and you would go to school the next day and kind of brag about the game last night or whatever. Um, and unfortunately here locally, like we don't have that city league, that rec league fun. Um, it seems kids only really learn the game when there's an umpire on the field and another uniform and the scoreboard's turned on. And I'm like, they never really get the the unstructured, unorganized, like play the game and have fun. And the wiffle ball aspect of it is just genuine. Like you're literally just playing. You're learning the game at the same time because you're figuring out like I made a mistake and I just gave away second base because, you know, I threw the ball the wrong way. And but it's fun and there's no penalty for for messing up. And they play so fearless and you yeah. can see the joy on their faces. And, you know, I've tried to translate uh, some of that wiffle ball aspect into like training in the cage. Um, I don't know if you have like the flat bat or whatever, but we have a flat bat and I'll get some tennis balls. And uh, we'll we'll go in bat and practice mode, and I'll be like, let's play a uh, flat bat home run derby is what I call it. So I'll, we'll we'll throw tennis balls at them. They try to hit the ball clean, and we'll put it on the little league field, and they're just trying to play home run derby with the flat bat and hit the ball flush. And 
they have the most fun doing that. But at the same time, guess what? If you're hitting the ball hard with the flat bat and you're squaring up that tennis ball, you're you're probably meeting it pretty good. Your quality of contact is getting better. You got a pretty good swing path going on. And I'm not telling you that. You're just figuring that out and having fun while you're doing it. Yeah, we've uh, we've got some flat uh, bats at the facility, and we do use some tennis balls because uh, they're made out of wood. What's really fun is you get it like you just pull out the brand new tennis balls out of the package, so they're you know pretty. Uh, they got a lot of compression to them, and see a twelve year old hit a ball like two seventy on hit tracks with a tennis ball, like they light up. And you don't have to do anything. We'll do uh, batea sometimes, um, so you know it's just a little. It's like a little hockey puck, a little white disc. And just, you know, it's just like a stick ball, essentially. Um, my partner's son, Mac, who's 13 now. Uh, so that same kid, just to kind of go back, the same kid that I started working with, hitting the ball 150 feet was like a stretch goal. Like he was hitting the ball probably 100 feet. So that first goal was like, let's, you know, 50% greater. And now Mac is 13. He just weighed in over 100 pounds. Mac is the ball 290 feet with a drop five. He's, you know, he's 13, uh, almost 90 miles an hour. And he's, he's there almost every day hitting. So we make it really tough and difficult on him. And so we talk about a lot of times, like he gets so much structured play. It's, you know, everything with the coach and all that. So we sometimes just say, hey, man, we're just going to play a little bit of a wiffle ball with him or we're going to do some stick ball with him just because we want him to, to enjoy the game. If, if everything for the rest of his life is a, a lesson, he's just going to get sick of it. Um, and I think that's sometimes the, the downfall of travel ball is that everything is so structured and so formal and everything has such high stakes that players don't really learn to go for it and give their best effort without the fear of failure. Like they would in a wiffle ball game playing with their friends when they're out for blood. Like I've, if you do wiffle ball, I used to run camps. If you do wiffle ball every day, twice a day, we used to do it once before lunch and once at the end of the day, by day three, they're out for blood. Kids are crying if they're oh, losing. Yeah. Like it's super intense. But they play like 30, 40, 50 games a year. I've had kids that play 60-plus games a year travel baseball at 12, 13 years old. It's no longer like super intense. Sometimes it's just going through the motions, unless it's a championship game or, or a big ranked opponent, you know? Yeah, you, some of the tournaments around here, you know, they're we'll play four games in two days. And if you make it to the championship game, now you're on your fifth game in three days, possibly six and three. So if you spend 10 months out of a year doing that, um, we lose so many kids at 13 and 14 years old. And some of our better players, like you just said, you know, that kid who spends a lot of time in a structured environment and he's a very talented athlete, you don't want to lose that kid when he's 14 or 15 because he just gets burnt out, you know, and, and it's not joy because it was always like, well, whenever I play baseball, it was I was going to a lesson or I was going to some type of organized game. Um, and you don't, you lose that feeling of just like uh, the sandlot jeans and a t-shirt and I'm just hitting the ball. And, you know, we played with tennis balls and when we got each other out, it was because we pegged you with the ball when you were running out around the bases. Um, those are some of the funnest memories I can, I can think of growing up. Um, and I just I wish kids got that more often. Um, and unfortunately, around here, they they don't get it as much as they they did when I, I was growing up. And when you're like a lesson coach, you have to kind of bring some of that 
enjoyment, enthusiasm with you in the cage so that if they do come repeated, I mean, there's some players that, you know, it's good for them, right? They're coming in, they're getting better and they've got someone that they connect with. that's telling them what to value so that they improve. Um, you know, I've been described as very business-like in the cage and it's just my mentality and my approach is I'm a little bit more like I need this kid to get better and I'm very focused. We've got two really young coaches, really skilled and talented coaches, uh, with Chris and Kevin, who I think connect with player 26 and 23 that connect with the players sometimes and they make it a little bit more fun than I do sometimes. So I've got, you know, years of experience on them, but they get more result or better results sometimes for players just because they really do like connect a little bit more and make the game more fun in the cage. And sometimes I look over and I'm like, I, I got to pull some of that energy into what I'm doing. Yeah. Those, those relationships matter. And, you know, you can learn from them too and vice versa. And it's pretty cool when like, see, I, that's where I don't really have that advantage. Like it's, I do one-on-one -on -one lessons um, every night from like five to nine. So like I'm the only one. Um, and sometimes they might get tired of hearing my voice, but I, I try to make it where they want to come back. And it, you can always tell the kids who are like, I want to go there and hit, like they show up so enthusiastic. They're enthusiastic when they leave. And, you can always tell the kid who like mom and dad probably signed them up for the lesson because they want them to get better. They want them to have something to do. And some, sometimes that may be me, maybe my personality is too dry for them or I was too serious that night. And, or, or sometimes maybe the, you know, you can, some kids that they, they don't really, they're training because mom and dad wants them to train and, and you can kind of tell. Um, and some kids are training because they generally want to do it and they want to be there. Um, and those are always the funnest lessons. Um, talk about some of the things that you guys are doing, like, you're getting all this growth with your hitters and you're making it fun at the same time. How are you using like the tech to um, make them better? How are you guys using blast and how are you using hit tracks to develop your plans for how you're going to train the hitters and necessarily do you provide all of that feedback to the player or do you keep some of that to yourself or is it, does it depend on who the player is? Um, I, I heard this recently. Um, and I don't, I, I wish I could attribute it, but when there's a lot of noise, you have to be very clear with the signal. So, you know, that's what a lot of this subjective feedback is. It just becomes a lot of background noise for the player and, and something else to distract their attention. So when we're working with a player, we're, we're uh, taking them through a progression from your know, activation and warm up for a few minutes. Um, so it's throwing a med ball or doing some band work or blunt planks, whatever, just getting their like central nervous system firing saying, okay, now it's time to be an athlete. And then we're going to take them through some movement stuff. Um, so we, we call it principal movements. We're going to focus on some of the basics. So hinge, uh, you know, scap load is called drawback, um, stuff like that. And then we're going to progress through T work and then toss work. So, until we get into BP, it's it's basically we're we're probably not using a blast sensor just because attack angles on flips or off a of T work can be like so yeah. smooth compared to live. Um, but we're gonna have you know just game mode of hit tracks up, so they're just getting the very basic feedback. And usually the kids, you can see kind of where their eyes are going. They're usually just focusing on hard and far. They don't really care like pull side or oppo unless we're specifically working on uh, direction. They just want to hit the ball hard and far. And I think that's just a very simple thing. I don't ever really talk about launch angle uh, with a player. 
Uh, we've got a, a back net, which is a pretty good below the top of our, our back net that hangs down. Anything below that's under 10 degrees and that's going to be a ground ball. Anything that hits the back net is going to be between 10 and usually 25 degrees and anything hit the top is going to be over 25. So I can just kind of frame it with depending on how hard they hit it. Hitting the back net is going to be a line drive. Hitting below the back net is a ground ball. And then they'll see it with the numbers if they want to. But I think that just puts a little bit too much uh, in their head sometimes. When I have a blast sensor on their bat, a lot of the times I'm keeping that to myself. Unless it's something where, let's say I have a player that's just swinging with really low intensity. I'll ask a player like one out of ten. How hard are you swinging? Zero is like the slowest, laziest swing you make. Ten, you could not swing any harder. Where are you in that scale? Most of the time, they're going to say six or seven. And then I subtract two from whatever they say. Not because I think they're lying to me, but because their potential is usually related to like what they think they can do to produce a good outcome. So they think, a lot, most kids, I think, if I swing at 80%, that's as hard as I can swing and make good contact. But what I find is like, if you really push them and you say, I want you to swing as hard as you can for the next 10 swings, what, what I'll do is I'll look at their average uh, exit below. Maybe it's like 62 mile an hour, right? They'll take 10 swings and the first two or three will be poor contact. And if a player does that in a game or without a coach encouraging them to swing hard, They'll, they'll abort. Okay. They'll yeah. go right back to swing at 80%. But if I tell them it's okay, just keep going. What happens is the body will start to collaborate, start to calibrate itself it, because it's swinging at a much quicker, faster intensity. It doesn't know like how to like when to launch or what direction it's going or how to stay on plane or through the ball. So you'll see some poor contact and some rollover, but if you give them enough swings, they'll start to square it up. And then I'll show them, hey, did you, did you notice like that's our 60th swing of this session? You only took 10, but your average velo actually went up and your max velo went up. And if you give yourself enough time swinging like that, what you thought was your 10 is going to be your future eight. And you can do that comfortably at that speed in a game and it will play. And then you'll know when you can take it up to like your max swings and you have a good count, when you know the pitcher, when you feel like you've got some leverage, that's when you can absolutely let it eat and see what happens. But we get players that are just so comfortable swinging at a certain speed, they never really test themselves. So that's a player I'll maybe just, I'll put up the biggest one screen bat speed so they can see it and just like, hey, that swing was you know 60 mile an hour or whatever. If it's like a high school guy, that swing was 65. If I want to push their intensity, uh, attack yeah. we'll look at that with the hitter just to see if they're in range so if i throw the ball let's say it's i'm throwing a ball 45 mile an hour um from my normal slot which i think is about right here it'll be about 13 degrees down angle depending on the level of the player i want them to be just slightly higher we'll see just slightly higher than the descent angle will be their attacking on their best swings because they're just getting right under contact so if the ball's coming down 13, their attacking will be just below that. So it'll be like 14, 15 degrees when they hit the ball their best. Right. And then I want those guys to be in a, a relatively 
good range for their level. So if it's a young guy, I want a little bit of a steeper attack angle because they're used to facing slower pitching. Yeah, that thing's kind of lofting in the zone. Yeah, and then if pro guys, like they need to be between six and nine degrees on a lot of swings. And if we get eye pitch going with a lot of backspin, the pitches they may be seeing are four to five degrees. That is like super high spin rate flat, like with some like junk on your hands flat. And uh, if they can hit that off of yeah, that. If you could square up a five degree at the top, you got a good shot. Oh, yeah. And then they, they at that point, we're no longer talking about like uh, attack angle of the bat. We're talking about just contact point. Just catch the ball out front. Yeah. If they're thinking hitting the ball in the air, they're probably going to struggle. For sure. Uh, it's funny you're talking about, you know, the bat speed and trying to swing faster. I, I think a lot of kids, they get caught swinging safe because, you know, just to make contact. So my – my safe swing gives me a lot of contact and I'm not used to um, swinging fast, you know, like my, my, my mantra is swing angry damage mode. And I tell my hitters all the time, like swing faster, swing angry and they swing. And sometimes they'll, they'll take a really good swing sometimes and they'll miss. And I think we grow up with the concept of it's not okay to swing and miss like, because what happens in T-ball? If a kid swings and misses in T-ball when we're five years old, nobody says anything. Like, it's so quiet. But when a kid swings at five years old, and it doesn't matter if they just dribble it right to the pitcher off of the tee, everybody claps. And, like, little Johnny or Susie, they get to run the first. So they have been trained. Like, when I make contact, everybody claps, you know. But mm -hmm. when I swing and miss, nobody does anything. So they're so scared to swing and miss or they're fearful of the swing and miss like it's the ultimate failure. Uh, and then when they get in my cage, I had like the kid who was hitting the 90 was only 10 and he took a really good fast swing um, and he and he just missed. And I was like, dude, it's OK. Like you swung well, because if you take that same swing and you connect, you're probably going to hit it hard and far. And he's, he starts to relax. and He's like, oh, it's OK to swing and miss. You know, people don't usually tell me that. And mm -hmm. I don't think hitters get that feedback enough. Um, and then the blast sensor with the bat speed. I had a girl come in one day last week and her her softball bat speed is usually around 55 to 59 and she was like swinging average 49 and i'm like mm -hmm. after her lesson like i thought about her for two or three days i'm like what did i do what like what did i say the wrong cue um what happened for her average bat speed to go from 55 to 49 and she came back for another lesson the other day and it turns out um she just had a terrible day at school and mm -hmm. you know it when she when she told me that actually her mom is the one who told me because so i was like i thought about your lesson for two or three days and like i said a lot of people think of us as hitting private hitting instructors that you know they think from the outside that we're just transactional you know like oh you paid me for a service i did your lesson and then when you leave i don't think about you anymore and that can be anything far like that's far from the truth um, a lot of times we we think about these lessons more than the hour we spend with them um and she was one of them and she just had a bad day at school and she had that mentality when she came in. And if I didn't have the bat sensor on her bat, you know, I never would have known how far off her bat sensor, had, her bat speed had actually dropped. Yeah. So sometimes using it in that case, like I can match, you know, some days they come in and they had a great day. Some days they come in and they didn't have such a great day. And I think even in her high school practice is about to start. And sometimes high school coaches don't even realize that, Hey, maybe your player's just not like mentally there today. And, and you, you just didn't know, you know? Yeah, there's uh, there's so much going on in our kids' heads sometimes. And I think that's why we talk about building rapport with players, right? Like during that activation and that movement time is 
uh, picking up balls, you know, after arounds, like those are the times to ask kids questions and talk to them. You know, sometimes we'll get a kid that's just so, I don't know, um, introverted around people they don't know very well. So you got to kind of break down those doors, get them to talk a little bit. And then we got to, you get them to shut up and start getting too excited. But that's like a good problem to have when a kid's like really chatty and, and really enjoys himself. And we have to remember that no matter what happens, whether these kids play, you know, good youth baseball, whether they continue to play in high school or college or whatever, like our goal is to get people to still love the game of baseball. You know, um, I, I think the stat was if a, if a player participates for three years, they'll be a fan for life. So like MLB's goals, you know, nine to 12, get them in a little league, get them playing. Even if they don't continue in high school, they'll still follow the game. And uh, I just want, I want our players to feel like they have the skills and the interest and, and uh, the ability to play when they're 13, when we lose 50% of baseball players at 14, we lose 75% of baseball players uh, when they enter high school, like it's crazy. Our first goal and priority should be to get them to have fun and be interested in the game. You know, why do you think so many of them leave at 14? I, I think they, some of, some of it, I think is they have a, a problem adjusting to the bigger field. Yeah. Um, and, and what are your strategies to combat that? Because I just had a kid I trained and I had to talk him into going from a negative 10 to a negative eight. Um, mm-hmm. And he's, he just, uh, he just turned 12 in November. And I was like, we need to progressively start building you up to where you can have success when you get to, you know, the bigger field. And that bat's just not going to be um, a nightmare for you for an entire year or more. When I was, uh, so when I was in uh, Little League, I was a, I'm a July 31st birthday. So, you know, I was 11 playing as a league age 12. So when you're 11 and you're skinny, like super skinny, I looked at the players at 13 and thought, no way I'll be 12, but ain't no way that like they, they were scary to me. So I didn't play when I was 13 and 14 and I, you know, grew up and, you know, wasn't scared anymore when I was in, in high school. So I tried back out for the team and that was fine, but I missed out on two years and I didn't give it up, but you know, I stopped playing for two years because I, I was intimidated by the size of the players that were continuing on at that level. Cause guys like my size just quit. And so what we talk about are the skills at scale, right? So we, we try to develop the mindset that we're trying to develop those kids now so that they're not intimidated uh, by the field when they're 13, that they are a high performing 12 year old. And they know that as they graduate with the kids at their level, they already know they're trying to hit the ball hard and far. It does not scare them as much. And man, we've had kids that like never hit a home run at, on a 12 U field. That is their first home run. They hit their first home run on 13 or, or a high school field the next season. So, you know, we try to develop bat speed. Uh, We talk about developing power and power comes from the size of your bat. So uh, I was fortunate enough to work with uh, Diamond Kinetics and with Axe Bat. So we got a little bit more background on the bats. Yeah, this is this is something I wanted you to go into anyway, like your your bat expertise. Say, give us your 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 background on that and, and help us find the right bat that we can swing fast and get the most production out of. Yeah, so if, if you swing a wiffle ball bat, you're going to blazing bat speed through the zone, but it doesn't have enough mass to get the ball to go anywhere. So I'm sure you heard it as I heard it when I was a player. 
the pitcher supplies the power and all I got to do is make contact. And that's furthest from the truth. The baseball weighs five ounces. Your bat, depending on what level, weighs between 20 and, you know, 30 ounces. Okay. So um, the bat provides all the power and furthermore, the weighting of the bat determines kind of how quickly you can overcome the momentum uh, or inertia of the bat. So if the bat's just sitting there kind of stagnant on your shoulder and it's a big barrel loaded bat, it's going to take a lot of force to get that barrel up to speed, which is why having the right sequence and going from pelvis to torso to lead arm to hand and summation of speed up the chain is so important. You can get that heavy bat to accelerate faster and produce more power. So we're trying to always balance like what's the right weight to produce the most power, but also be quick at the same time. So with blast, we look at their time to contact. It takes about 200 milliseconds from pitch release for a player to assess whether they're going to swing or decide whether they're going to swing that pitch, which leaves, you know, if it's 400 total milliseconds from release to home plate, it leaves about 200 milliseconds left for a player to actually get the bat from launch to the pitch. And so if you got a little kid that takes like 230 milliseconds to get their swing, which we see a lot with players that walk through the doors, it just takes them too long. Uh, unless they're seeing really slow pitching, they don't have enough processing speed usually because they don't have enough experience to transfer speed to the bat. So yeah. they're always late. And then dad's yelling at them like you swing faster or, yeah. you know, be quick or whatever. So they start like, like telling the pitcher to throw strikes. It's yes. just not going to help. Not right now. And so they start swinging before they even know. So that's why like, you know, if, if they don't swing because they couldn't process it fast enough and dad's like swing the bat, the next time they swing, it's like ball. It's like, way over their head (laughs) it happens all the damn time and that's because the kid can't process it fast enough so like we want our players with it to be within a good range so there's a like youth bats are drop 12 now whoo that's not a mass or really do anything but yes if your kid just cannot swing the bat go ahead we want our guys generally swing and drop tens we're gonna look at their time to contact we're gonna try to improve their bat speed we're gonna make sure that the, their contact point is not so far out in front, like off T-work or off flips, that it just makes a really long swing that won't play in games. But we're going to make sure, like, they have the right time to, you know, from release to make contact so that they're quick. And uh, then once we see that they're pretty consistent with a short time to contact, we're going to encourage them to go up and bat side. So, you know, to a drop eight, to a drop five, we're going to have our guys train with wood and have our drive train with axe uh, training bats. So our youth guys train with 30 inch, uh, 24, 26 ounce uh, weighted bats so that they're not really worried about the weight of a, of a heavy youth bat. Um, that there's only two youth bats, uh, training bats in the system uh, of axe because they're already swinging an underload bat. What right. they need is develop power. So we're going to have an end load and a handle load. And then when you get in high school, now we're trying to develop some quickness and some speed as well as power. So you give them an underload bat and that one, they can really move fast. Their body starts to learn to adjust to making the object moves fast. That will transfer to their game bat. And then we use a really heavy bat. We use the 37 inch uh, long bat in training. So if they got a bat that's 37 inches with this huge arc, they're going to learn to stay really tight, to sequence things well, to get that yeah, if, if, you're, if your arms and casty, like that bat's going to tell on you quick. 100%. And then you'll see they'll start to, to make the arc smaller by trying to pull their arms across their chest and they're just slicing across balls. Right. 
So, you know, it's, it's a give or take. We're going to put a lot of heavy bats in their hands. We're going to take their off speed folks on bat speed. We're going to encourage them to try. We've got training bats from Axe Bat. Uh, War Stick has been nice enough to send us bats, you know, just say, hey, we just like what you're doing. Here's some bats. Let your kids try them out. So we'll have kids just go pull them off the wall. But when you create an environment where they're constantly using something that's heavy or, or using something that's light, using something short, using something that's long, they, they lose their stigma about swinging with, the perfect bat that weighs the perfect, it is the perfect length and, you know, all that stuff. You know, do I think bat matters? Yeah, bats matter, but I want my players to feel like they could pull the limb off that tree and get hits, you know? Yeah. Most of the time for me, I have kids who come in swinging a bat that's too light. And like at 10, 11 and 12 years old, if I see a 29 drop 11, I'm like, man this is like you can swing this super fast and you're not even getting rewarded because that barrel to ball contact like the ball is basically pushing your bat away because your bat's so light yeah you'll see little kids they'll hit the ball and their bat will like stop and back up before it finishes it's crazy and my biggest challenge is like trying to convince the parent that you know, why'd you buy this bat? Because he picked it up in the store and it felt really good and it felt light. And um, ironically, you know, my you mentioned the wiffle ball bat being able to swing it fast. I've got a couple of the uh, the little wiffle ball, like toddler. My, my daughter will be three in April. So she goes in there and kind of messes with the little ML, the blue MLB bat. Yeah. And I'm like, you could pick up that one and probably swing it super fast. But what if I throw this baseball at you and you try to collide with it? It's not going to make a good bat to ball collision. Um, and we use the bat speed sensor. Uh, we use blast to try out, like I've got a couple of the true bats, the, uh, the true drop eight. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've got a true drop five. I've also got the, um, the act speed trainers you just mentioned. Um, and we have the 31 inch version. So I'll get them like, I'll grab this true drop eight. You know, it's a, it's a 30, 22, or maybe it's the 32, 24, depending on which age group I'm working with. I'm like, let's just try this bat. It's a balanced bat. Let's see what your bat speed is. A lot of times I can take a kid who you came in with a 29 drop 11 and you switch to maybe a 30, 22 or whatever. And your, your bat speed's almost exactly the same. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I'll, I'll have a kid who, this is a true story. Kid comes in, he comes in with two bats. Uh, I think one of them's a 29 and one of them is like a 30 inch and he's always late in the game. So coaches were like, swing the 29 cause you're late. Yeah. And I give, I'm like, let's test out both of them and just see what you can do. His bat speed's almost identical with both bats. I'm like, you're just late because you're late. Like, mm-hmm. you're not late because of the bat. You're late because you're not in sync with the pitcher. You're like, your first move's late. And yeah. it doesn't matter which bat I give you. Your first move's always late. You're always going to be late on the pitch. You just talked about, like, the time it takes from release to get to the plate. Like, you're not efficient enough to get there quick enough. And until your swing improves, you can play with either one of them you're not going to have consistent contact because your sequence just needs to clean up. Your time to contact needs to get better, but you're going to get better with the right bat and get more, get rewarded more versus trying to think you're magically going to be on time because you need the lighter bat. And here's, here's a kicker is that depending on how a player swings, a barrel loaded bat might actually be quicker than a balanced bat. If you have a player that that barrel turns, right. That's kind of, yeah. You got knob to the ball guys and you got barrel turn guys, guys that are a little deeper and a little bit more barrel turn generally are going to swing pretty close to the same bat speed. But occasionally we have a player that'll be 10th, 
to 20 tenths of a second quicker on average with a barrel load than they will be with a handle loaded. Uh, when I worked for Diamond Kinetics, we had a program or a uh, for Demarini bats. And we wanted them to buy it. They didn't buy it, but I got to test it. And with my high school son who was swinging a Voodoo at the time, which is a slightly unloaded bat, uh, I thought because he was only 170 pounds, he'd probably be a little quicker and maybe able to produce more speed with a balanced CF Zen uh, or CF7, I think is what it was at the time. And he was quicker time to contact with a Voodoo a little bit more unloaded, which was the, the bat he felt best with already. But he was quicker consistently over a lot of swings over multiple sessions with that bat than he was over the same bat with a much lower swing weight. So um, I know that uh, there's some guys that have done some, some stuff with bats, um, but we're only scratching the surface on bat fittings for players and really finding what works best for them. And I think eventually what we'll find is that we'll have a player at the professional level, at least that will have two or three different bats. They'll have a slightly shorter bat. Uh, they'll have a slightly longer, heavier bat. So they might have a power bat. They might have a control bat. They might have something that's shorter. They might have something longer, depending on what they're going for. Uh, it'll be more like a golfer with 14 clubs rather than a, a hitter that just picks up a bat and goes, feels good. Let's go do it. Yeah. That's the one I need to use. Yeah. And, and ultimately – you just you're just guessing them, and unfortunately, golf's been so far ahead of baseball in almost everything. I guess, like you said, I mean, when you started playing golf, and you, you had all the technology that would give you the feedback on the swing plane and the approach angle of the club and all of that stuff. You know, baseball is catching up, um, and and it seems to be we're always behind pitchers. Like the pitching technology and the the ability to tunnel pitches now, like. Why are strikeouts so high in Major League Baseball? It's not because hitters can't hit, because we score a lot of runs and we hit more homers than ever. But pitchers are just, they're pretty good. Um, and it's a good thing you guys have the eye pitch because you can kind of simulate some of those environments that the mm -hmm. hitters today at the highest level are having to face. Like, I don't know if you want to get into bullpens anymore because everybody throws 100 with nasty sliders. You're not getting through the lineup three times on a the pitcher. They're pulling him after the second at bat. They're just looking at the data, man, and, and people can say what they want about nerds, influence on baseball, but uh, I think the Rays are the most well-run organization in professional baseball. They have a super low payroll, and they churn out talent. Uh, their, their coaches aren't the most uh, – aren't the most um, – vocal on social media they almost like to trying to keep things to themselves but yeah. man can they develop hitters like it they can develop hitters they can develop pitchers and, and it's, it's funny you it. mentioned the Rays. uh i just talked to somebody who's in the pro game and he said if the rays are asking about a player uh -huh. you need to figure out why yeah because they know something you don't yeah i believe that and and you know the, their track record kind of uh speaks for itself and and uh what we see just generally is you know the average pitch is like 95 mile an hour average uh pitch you know people go back to you know my favorite era of baseball because that's when i was a, a kid growing up was the 90s baseball and i love the braves right i was a big maddox and glavin and smoltz guy uh as much as i bicker about smoltz commentary today he was my favorite pitcher of those guys they were all thrown between 88 and 92. 
um, and were considered kind of the, the, the big guys of that age, right? And you had some guys that were in the 95s. Now everybody's got a, a guy that throws 100 that no one's heard of. And uh, they have filthy secondary stuff. Everybody's stuff moves above double uh, A level. Everybody is learning to uh, tunnel pitches. So they all come out looking the same. And I think the hitters today are the most talented of any generation. And I love 90s hitters. Uh, I love the early 2000s. Um, I, I made a post that was uh, a little bit, you know, derogatory about the, whole, the, the Hall of Fame. But I'd vote, I'd vote Barry Bonds into the Hall of Fame in a heartbeat um, just because I think he's everyone's best player they've ever seen uh, yeah. not understanding the circumstances. But overall, I think today's hitters are so much more skilled overall because they're just facing so much elevated talent now, uh, so much diverse and elevated talent. Like it's hard to hit a hundred and try to hit 87 with, you know, 10 inches of horizontal break. Um, and you got Blake Trinan who's coming out here and this guy's just everything he throws look like he's playing blitz ball, like good luck yeah. trying to hit this guy. Isn't DeGrom's change up like 94 or something like it's sick. Yeah. It's, um, it's unreal. I mean, he just says, here it is. See if you can hit it. And my fastball is a hundred. I'm going to throw it wherever I want. I um, faced. But- maybe three pitchers when I was in high school that threw 85 up 85 gas. I, I graduated in 97 when my son was in high school. This was a few years ago. It was 2016. Uh, he had three guys on his roster that threw 90 to 92 in one high school. That's how much the game has changed. Uh, our 13 year olds, uh, one of our 13 year old, um, uh, teams uh where we coach a lot of players they're seeing guys throwing mid 80s at 13 uh it's sick how much the game is elevated not at the pro level but all the way down yeah when i played i think i saw like one guy in high school who threw 90 because 90 just came by your face and it sounded different Mm -hmm. um and it's just unreal um but but now you know we've got the ability for hitters to I don't know if you guys use the win reality, you know, win reality through the Oculus. Um, I don't know exactly how much it connects with, you know, you're doing it in a virtual environment, but at least you can kind of pick up like seeing the ball flight out of the hand from 60 feet, seeing 91 and seeing a slider and try to do pitch recognition and, you know, things like that. And then using the pitching machine, I've, I've told a lot of my hitters, like, why do you hit so good off of lower velo? Because where do you, what do you train like? You know, what do you see all the time? Mm-hmm. You see a lot of front toss and you see a lot of regular overhand BP. So your brain recognizes it and can process the information fast because you see it a lot. I was like, even if you're not necessarily ready to hit good fastball velo out of the pitching machine, at least like track some pitches out of it. And maybe you're not swinging, but you're, you're seeing the speed and you're seeing it. So maybe your brain can start processing it more. Um, because I've had hitters who would come in and the first round off of the machine, we're just doing blocked fastballs and they're just late, 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 late. Mm-hmm. And after about three or four weeks, they start to develop their timing a little bit more. And I told him, I was like, I think part of it has to do with you've never trained in an environment where you were tested against velo. So your brain wasn't used to processing it. So it always looked overwhelming in a game. But now that you're seeing it more often, your brain's able to process that information a little bit faster. And I could just be randomly guessing and there may not be any connection to it, but I feel like there is. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, Barry Bonds, Edgar Martinez, video of those guys seeing tennis balls at 120 mile an hour. Um, when, I, when I try to research a lot of vision training, it's a lot of sketchy stuff, in my opinion. Uh, but, I mean, Barry Bonds was tracking 120 mile an hour pitches um, and then stepping in the game where, you know, Percival's not throwing that hard compared to what you're seeing in the, in the cage, at least. So that's, we, we want our guys to start to adjust their eyes to more rapid, you know, time intervals so that, you know, it's not an entire second uh, ball flight in the air, right? Let's replicate what they're seeing in games. Let's start to make quicker decisions, start to get their eyes to start to adjust and track the ball. And then we're going to start to like vary it a lot. So, you know, from blocked reps to some more uh, randomization, uh, more variables. Uh, one of our uh, hitters today, I was talking with uh, one of our coaches, they're working on slow to fast and adjusting constantly slow to fast because that's what he struggles with in games. He's actually great on fast pitching because he sees so much velo in our cage that that doesn't really bother him, but it's the slower guys and trying to make up for that extra time in his head so now we're giving a lot of mixed BP where it's like maybe 45 out of the hand and I'm going to drop a 36 mile an hour, just arm speed fastball from 40 feet and watch them adjust to it. And when I got a player that can go random pitches, random selections, random locations, in BP, then replicate that with uh, more competitive at bats or like simulated at bats. They're dangerous on the field, man. Yeah. I've got some high school hitters that I'm training right now and, in my setup, I've got a 35-foot cage. Um, by the time you add the hitting mat in and then you set the pitching machine up, we're throwing the hack attack. I've got a junior hack, and we're throwing it about 24 to 25 feet away from the plate. Um, so with my high school hitters now here in North Carolina, we're about to start high school baseball on February 14th. So I'm trying to convert them into, like, it's good that you can hit the – the fastball, we move it around like outside, middle, in, up. But you know you're getting 15 pitches. It's going to be the fastball, and you're squaring them up. Your line drive percentage is getting up around. You know, you're pretty consistent in around the 15. You're 50% or more line drives. Mm -hmm. All right, so we're barreling the fastball. That's good, but we need to start getting you ready for the game. You know, now you're going to face somebody who's going to try to get you out. We, we got a good swing. We got a good base. Um Let's try to translate that into now instead of just doing 15 rounds uh, or a set of 15 fastballs, let's go, you know, see some spin. Even if it's a round of like 15 breaking balls where, you know, the cool thing about the hack attack at 24, 25 feet away, a breaking ball does not always go in the exact same spot. Mm -hmm. So it may go down the middle on one rep and it may be like low and away like a 0-2 pitch on the next rep. So sometimes they're going to have to put some stops in. Yeah. Um, and just seeing that spin and seeing that breaking ball, a lot of times they're like, well, I just want to hit another round of 15 fastballs and see if I can keep hitting it hard in the air. And and then they go through a little bit of failure on the breaking ball machine. Um, and then we will go like overhand, like I've got to start mixing it a little bit. And mixing it from 24, 25 feet away can be a challenge. And some guys like they only barrel three out of 10. And I'm like, but are you making good decisions? Are you getting ready for the guy who's going to try to get you out in February or are you just going to be a great BP hitter off of the hack attack at, you know, blocked fastballs coming right at you? Yeah. And, um, 
I think that's the real key is that um, with high school guys, you have to just like push them to seek failure a little bit more often. Uh, they just get so comfortable with, you know, being confident all the time. And so we'll often ask them like, you know, is your goal to be confident or is your goal to be prepared for games? And here, they, you know, two weeks after their, the first start of practice, they're playing games, you know, yeah, same uh, it's, here. it's quick. So, you know, I need those guys to be ready to go. One of our, our harder hitting um, high school guys basically told him, uh, basically chewed him out and said he needed to be taken spin every day because he's either hitting three hole or four hole for his team. You know, he hit four home runs last year. He's going to do better this year. But he gets a lot of off speed and curve balls and he's got to be ready for it. So you got to hit, hit him with that every single day. So, you know, it, it once you hit the ball over 100 miles an hour as a high school kid, you're, you're it's good enough, you know, so so to speak. Not that it's it doesn't help you to hit it harder, but like we're at a we're at a, an elite level. Now let's focus on like actually transferring into the game and, you know, let's not be Serrano swinging over a curveball every time it's a two strike count. Yeah, right. Because when they find your vulnerability, they're going to feed it to you. Like you know, if you're if you're the three four hole hitter and you're not surrounded, I don't know too many high school teams that are hitting one through nine. You know, high school teams, other coaches are going to uh, expose you. Like if that's the three four hitter that I know can beat me, but I know if I can pitch around him and make him chase out of the zone, or he doesn't hit the breaking ball well, well I'm, why would I feed him the fastball? I'm just going to feed him three breaking balls and see if I can get him to expand or pop up, and I'll deal with the six through nine guys that you know I can you know pitch more aggressively to with the fastball. So I think you definitely you know as a high school hitter you you better be able to have adjustability in your swing when you get to good varsity baseball because when they start being able to command three pitches, it becomes your approach is important, your ability to adjust from pitch to pitch and recognize, you know, how other pitchers are going to attack you and develop a plan and maybe learn from the first at bat and come up with an informed plan on that second at bat, because that's the environment that you've got to, you know, thrive in. Yeah. I think learning as a hitter, you know, um, I was a leadoff guy. So I was supposed to just get out there and take a lot of pitches and not game plan at bats, just like see a lot of pitches and, you know, try to get some walks and all that. And, and I never really developed an approach. So, you know, the next part of like getting some experience of being able to hit spin and hit varied pitches is now trying to optimize the pitches that you swing at and have a game plan for yourself when you walk in the cage. So I think that's where like the competitive bat and then simulating a bass can really help putting players in mental situations and mental models of what they would do in this specific situation. What's your coach going to tell you in this situation? You know, is he going to tell you to hit the ball to the opposite field side? Is he going to tell you to try to hit the ball in the air? Usually not, but occasionally get a runner on third and you're the three hole guy, drive one deep, man, let's go. So I, I think it's, you know, trying to create the environment and also trying to in their mind, create like, what are you going to do in the situation that helps them in games? You know, can you get, can you take a pitch and get a better pitch? That's the only reason you should be taking. Uh, if, if it's first pitch down the middle, don't be looking at that and shaking your head at the, the third base coach. That, that was a good pitch. All right. Everybody knows it was a good pitch. Don't ask. Hit the Facts. Ball. Yeah. I have to tell hitters all the time. I'm like, I don't know what other people do, but 
I'm an offensive coach everywhere I've been. You know, I've usually ran the offense and directed the hitters. And I, I tell my guys, like, we're not taking pitches just for the sake of taking pitches. Like, 3-0 count. I would, I guess I became, I got a reputation because people started throwing us three O breaking balls, and I'm like, that's that's some respect right there. If you're if you're getting three O breaking balls, they respect that one. If they leave a fastball over the plate, you're gonna swing at it, and two, they're scared about you hitting it hard. But I would tell my guys like, if it's three O, you're probably gonna see a really good pitch, and if you can't hit a pitch middle middle hard that you know you're getting, you're probably not gonna play this game very long anyway. Yeah. Now, obviously, there are certain situations where we, we're we not going to be 3-0 automatic take ever, mm-hmm. but we're not going to always be 3-0 green light either. We're going to be 3-0 green light more times than not, but it's not a, you know, it's it's not a situation where it's automatic take and it's automatic swing. It's not one or the other. It's let's try to score runs as often as we can and use 3-0 swings as an advantage to do it, not as a way to get out, you know? When I was a, a younger coach and inexperienced, I used to always talk in the batter's box and give them a lot of signs and trying to manipulate or control the game. And as I got older and was coaching high school teams, you know, I'd get a lot of like just team rakes. And, and a lot of times I, it, it's not a players that I was working with consistently. So I wasn't their hitting coach and I wasn't giving them a lot of practice time. Uh, you know, it's a lot of travel to tournaments. So people would ask me what I do. And basically you, you, like you take the handcuffs off, off. Dude, <laughs> take the handcuffs off. off. Yeah. It's just like encouraging them to hit the ball hard, telling them I'm not going to make them bunt, telling them I'm not going to give them red lights. I'm going to let them swing away and I'm going to let them work them, themselves out of it. And when they stop getting punished for bad swings and punished for outs, then they start to really get aggressive. And so we put up big runs against good teams. And I can't say that it was a, uh, anything I was doing influencing them wise. It was just like, dude, swing the bat and have fun. Let's go. The, yeah. The ability to be a hitter in the box versus be micromanaged. I think, I think as coaches, we might not do it on purpose, but we lower our ability to score runs because we don't give our hitters enough credit to just be a hitter. We try to micromanage the at bat with the, like, I don't know. I, I never really had a sign for take a pitch. Um, now, obviously, you don't want to get your guy who's trying to steal home hitting the head uh, in situations like that. But we would never, like, if if I was stealing a base, I always told my hitters, like, if I give a first pitch steal, it's because I'm pretty sure he's going to make it 100% of the time and you're a good enough hitter where you're going to get another fastball, just like first pitch still let him have second base. Um, but other than that, like if it's a steal in any other count, like you don't have to take so he can steal the bag. Like if you hit one in the gap and he's running, he'll score anyway or whatever. But I don't know. I just tried to free the hitters up and just like guys, just like do your, do you in the box. Like if you're, if you're making bad swing decisions, I'll let you know, like you're, you're too aggressive out of the zone or you're too passive. You're just letting good pitches go. But we tried to, to be a hitter and not be a reactor. And we get into a lot of two strike situations because we're told to fake bunt on the first pitch. And I'm like, well, Mm -hmm. there goes the fastball down the middle because you just Mm -hmm. made your guy fake bunt for like no reason. Mm -hmm. Um, Or it's, Three one count, uh, take, mm-hmm. and now it's three two. Um, mm-hmm. 
you know, we're so diverse. You know, you look at batting average on a three Oh can or three one count. It's the best batting average in the game, but we get so risk averse. We're so worried about how it's going to look if we get out on a three Oh or a three one count that we're unwilling to let our players go. we got to let our players fail, man. I, I talked to college coaches and like, uh, They'll say stuff like, ah, runners, they don't have any instincts these days. I'm like, well, we micromanage everything that they Everything do. about the game. We tell them when to steal a base. Uh, we tell them when not to steal a base. We tell them what kind of jump we want them to go on, right? We, we tell them, well, if it's this count, don't, you know, all this shit when we really just need to say, go. And when they make a mistake, then we tell them, like, why that situation was probably not the best to run in. Dude, that guy had such a good jump. You got to have some feel for the situation without taking your like mental eyes off uh, of the ball so that you're not like focused enough to hit it. But man, like, dude, he was standing on second and you put a, a late swing on one. Yeah. That kind of stuff. <laughs> exactly. A little knowing the heartbeat of the game and having some feel for it, but you got to learn that without being micromanaged, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, this will be the, I know it's getting kind of late for you and getting late for me here on the East coast. So we'll wrap it up with this last part. Um, there was a tweet and, you know, I'm not going to quote the tweet or anything like that, but we'll talk about the topic because I think the topic is, you know, I think a lot of people can learn from it. And and if you think about it, there were probably good intentions with the tweet, but I don't, it's not going to help. And it's not going to, I'm a firm believer that the concept and the belief was wrong. And it basically related to, if you're not a good hitter, if you learn to bunt, you'll become a good hitter is basically the main idea of the tweet. Um, and I think that's so far from where it should be um, because I know from experience and from being around the game that at an, at an amateur level, the kids in, you know, 12U, 13 14 you if they're being told to bunt all the time it's mm-hmm. because they can't hit like mm-hmm. the kid who bats 10th in a in a 10 man lineup on the weekend in the AAU game or the travel game is batting 10th because their coach doesn't think they can hit and we play time limit games a lot in pool play around here so in an hour and a half game he may get one at bat, two if he's lucky, and he probably bunted in one out of the two and didn't even get to swing the bat but one time in a game Whereas the kid who can hit is batting probably one through five and didn't get told to bunt one time in the game and got two or three swings off. Um, And I just, I couldn't get my mind around that concept of if you want to become a good hitter, become a good bunter. Um, And I think it's just backwards. Yeah. Like um, I often think this, this uh, stat was presented at uh, from one of the coaches of the Dutch national team. And I'm, I'm forgetting his name. So I apologize to him, but in, uh, in the United States, we develop a big leaguer one for every 500,000 baseball players in the country. In the Dominican, they produce a big leaguer one for every 125,000. So they're three and a half times better in Curacao. They produce a big leaguer one for every 25,000 baseball players in the country. And what happens in both of those countries is that they focus a lot on developing the skills that will scale a baseball player to success. You know, the old saying was you can't walk off the island, right? You've got to be able to hit 
tanks. You got to be able to throw gas. You got to run fast. All of you got to be able to freaking field it. Right. Um, so the priority of what they try to develop is so different than than here. We tell our kids to, the, to avoid failure, right, to, or to limit failure. Just put the ball in place so you don't strike out. That's success. Um, you know, uh, walk. That's okay. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with walking. It's just like there's nothing wrong with bunting per se. But if you got an hour long practice and you're spending 15 minutes bunting as a team. It's 25% of your practice time on something you'll do once or twice a game. Like it's just, if you're, if you're trying to like develop the skills of your player, you're taking too much time on something that doesn't necessarily transfer to the next. And I know the, the thing was, well, it develops bat control. Well, no, holding a bat and doing this is not the same as swinging a bat. Two bat. completely different tasks. And and the way I, I see it is like, okay, look, I bunted in a game uh, uh, in a tournament final against like a D1 kid that we just could not get a hit off. Bunted three times, got on base three times, and I would have bunted the fourth, but I was just nervous as a coach. That would just look so stupid. Bunting in a, you know, bases loaded game, I could turn into, you know, whatever. Right. So I've done it to win a game. And there are situations where that's the best strategy. It's just not necessarily a long-term plan for success. Guys don't bunt at the, at the big league level, even with like, you know, big shifts and a ton of room, uh, not because I don't think it would be a successful option, but because it's so hard to go back and forth between the two skills of being a hitter and being a bunter. They're two different things. If it was like the key to success, all good bunters would be good hitters. I know several really good hitters that can't bunt for shit. I wonder. I wonder if um, you know Babe Ruth and Ted Williams, Reggie Jackson, King Griffey Jr. Like, I never watched those guys bunt enough to know if they were really great at bunting. But we all know they could hit pretty good. But I do know a lot of kids that I grew up with playing. A lot of kids that I've coached some of my best hitters were good hitters. Like they had adjustability. They could hit a breaking ball. They could hit a, a fastball and some of them couldn't bunt worth a crap. Um, mm. But I know a lot of my really good bunters, they couldn't hit a breaking ball. They were late on the fastball and they just weren't a good hitter. I've seen both sides of it. You got to swing a heavy bat, rapid, rapidly accelerate it and produce high bat speed of contact. Okay. That's the formula for swinging a bat and, and being able to be an effective hitter. Then you got to adjust all of those to pitches that are moving at different speeds all across the zone. You don't develop that skill by holding the bat and tracking it to the barrel with yeah. your hands. Trying okay? to touch so, the ball with the bat from but, a but, but steel spot. Yeah, I, I, I get it in certain situations, right? It's even in certain situations, giving up an out will actually score a run. You got a runner on third and it's, you know, a suicide squeeze and you get it down that results in a run. But most of the time bunts just produce outs and anything that results in an out lowers your chance to score. So again, taking back to high school, I eliminated all bunts. We don't bunts. We're not bunting all summer. No coach gives a shit. If you bunt, unless you've got really good 60 times, you're running a six, three coach will care if you bunt, but he doesn't care that much. If you can't hit, like you just can't hit. He's not going to, he's not going to bring you on anyway. 
But if you got elite speed, then sure, you, if that's a tool for you, you can lay one down. But I left it up to my hitters to choose whether they did it. I've never called for them. Yeah, and I, I don't want people to get the the misconception that this is like a, a anti-bunt, like don't ever bunt thing because it's not. It's what we're talking about is the misconception that you can develop a hitter by teaching a hitter how to bunt because that's never going to happen. Like they don't they don't equate together. The tasks are two completely different things. And I see it all the time that when when a kid gets to he has to try out for high school. And these are the skills that he has. He has average speed. He's an average defender. Um, he has below average hitting ability and below average power, but he's a really good bunter. Like he brings one skill to the table. Like that kid, if there's a fringe of a cut list, he's not on the good side of the fringe. You know, he has one skill and his one good skill is he can bunt. Yeah. He can't defend very well. He has below average arm strength. He's a below average hitter and he has no power. How often is that kid going to get an opportunity to play in a meaningful game? Is he even, if, if we're on the fringe and he's going to be the 18th guy or whatever, is he even going to be the 18th guy? Because he doesn't bring enough skill set to the table to even possibly make the team. And you thought making him a really good bunner was going to give him a chance to make the high school team back when he was 12 or back when he was 13. And that's not how it ever works. Um, and I think we, we lose that concept um, sometimes, uh, you know, unintentionally as a coach, like I said, I don't think any coaches have bad intentions, but sometimes even though you had good intentions, you're hurting your players with those same good intentions and they don't deserve it. You know, I just, it was basically for me, just not understanding how skill is developed and what skills are important. So swinging a heavy bat, accelerating it rapidly to a high speed is what hitting is making flush contact with the ball. None of that is developed when you're bunting. Um, exactly. That was my criticism of it. You don't develop a jump shot by shooting layups. You don't uh, develop the ability to solve calculus by going back to arithmetic. You know, like there's there's certain skills that can only be developed by doing the skill in different formats with different tools, with different like strategies. I, I get all that. But, man, I'm not going to I'm not also not going to get better at pulling the ball. Probably if I'm trying to hit if I practice everything oppo, I'm not going to get better at pulling it. If I'm trying to hit everything on the ground, I can hit it in the air. But you could say that's developing bat control the same way that you can say bunting develops hand-eye coordination and bat control or tracking the ball or whatever you believe is important to hitting. And there's just a difference in context of the two skills. So. And the, the bottom line is if you hit, you don't sit. Like if you hit and you're an okay defender, they find places to hide you on, on, on the field because they want your bat in the lineup. You may be a defensive substitute. You may get defensively substituted for late in the game, but you're going to find a spot in the lineup because they want your bat there. Like you're valuable if you can bring a hit tool to the squad. A lot um, of like high school kids going to college don't understand priority of skill by position, right? Like if uh, you're a pitcher, they don't care if you can hit, right? But if you're a first baseman, they don't really care how fast you are. Usually, they care like, do you have a stick? Uh, do you have? Can some you power? catch the ball? And can you and throw yes. it a second accurately? Exactly. And right, there's some guys that they can do everything. Right, those are the five tool guys. 
you play right field, generally you're going to have to have a stick or develop some power. Uh, if you play in center, it's glove and speed, right? Like that's priority. That's why uh, that's what I had was glove and speed, not much else. But it just depends on the player. So if you're telling uh, a third baseman, first baseman, right fielder that he needs to develop his skills as a bunter, you're just like limiting his ability to play at any level. High school, definitely college and all that stuff. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider sharing with others and be sure to leave a rating or review. I hope this helps. See you on the diamond.